0: Last week we celebrated <clears throat> the faithfulness of God to reward His people by looking at two chapters in the New Testament. Today I want to look at the faithfulness of God to even have a people at all by looking at two chapters from the Old Testament. If you've ever thought what Dan said was true, the miracle that we even exist here as the people of God, you'll certainly see it today as we look at these two great chapters from the, from the Old Testament. And my, my, my sermon today comes out of uh, a discovery of a sermon by John Piper last week as I was prepping for last week's message. And I was so moved, so fueled in my heart's desire to love the Lord through that message that I thought it was only right to share it with you today. And you might ask the question, is it right to use another man's message And I think that answer is yes for two reasons. Number one, I'm telling you I'm doing it. (laughs) And number two, my motive for doing it is for your marveling at God. So I think in that instance it would be not right not to do it. Our focus of the Scripture today is on the covenant renewal in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb or Mount Sinai. Just so we can know that we're all on the same page, a covenant, since this whole two chapters is about covenant, it's a relationship between God and man and it contains promises of God toward man and then it also is a, requires a reciprocal response of certain requirements that God wants from man. Now, this covenant was made uh, at Mount, in Moab, so these people are on the border of about to enter the new land, which the promised land that you and I today know is the land of Israel. They're a new generation getting a new covenant because the generation that preceded them has all died. So it took 40 years for this covenant to come about while God waited for the the people who betrayed him with the former covenant at Mount Sinai. Every one of them, older than 18 years, they died. For 40 years, this group of people wandered in the wilderness, and now a new generation, the sons and daughters of that previous generation, got a new covenant here, not at Mount Sinai, but here in the land of Horeb. Now, what makes this covenant so strange is that before God even gives it, he tells them, you're going to break it. It's a startling covenant because he says, you won't keep it, and yet I am making a covenant with you. Deuteronomy 29.2. Your eyes have seen all the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to all his land, with your own eyes, You saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders, but to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. This should intrigue you because he told them your eyes saw it. With your own eyes, you saw it, it. and with your eyes, you didn't see it. So he describes these people the same way that Jesus did his generation in Matthew 13, ever seeing but never seeing. Is the description of the covenant people in Deuteronomy 29. So it really leads us to two questions. What did they see? What did they not see? Well, what they saw was God doing phenomenal works. Moses saw told them a little bit about this phenomenal works in verse 2 of what God did to Pharaoh. That would be a reference to the day that God blew wind and part the ocean in two so that his people could walk in the middle of the sea on dry land and escape the Egyptian army. Now, everybody that was 18 years old or younger, anybody that was 18 at that time, 17 at the time, 16, even though it's 40 years later, they remembered that. They saw the ocean split, and yet Moses says, you didn't really see anything that day. So they saw the ocean split, and then they then they saw the care of God for 40 years after the ocean split in the wilderness. During the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did your sandals on your feet. Imagine walking on hot, burning desert sand for 40 years. One pair of sandals. I mean, somebody comes to you and says, man, I love those sandals. Where, how long you had them? 40 years. 40 years, no new clothes. 40 years, no new sandals. This is... God provided water for them for 40 years in the desert. He provided food, manna on the ground in front of their doorstep every day for 40 years. And he tells these people, I did all of this for you, but you have not seen it. Now, when God says that the Lord has not given you a mind to understand or eyes to see, it doesn't mean that he blinded them from seeing Him, in the midst of all of this, it meant that they gave away their eyesight because of the hardness of their heart. Major principle. God didn't just go around blinding people. Something happens first that blinds them that would make them to be in need of getting their sight back. We see this in Ephesians 4. Look at the pattern. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of ignorance. Blindness, where does that come from? That is in them due to the what? Hardening of their hearts. So a hard heart leads to blind eyes, not the other way around. That is, you can't see God because you don't want to see God. Heart closed off leads to eyes that can't comprehend. So at the beginning of the covenant, God says to them, you saw me, but you never really saw me. And that's code language for, you didn't see me enough to see me as worthy of your affection and the devotion of your whole heart. Might have seen my power, might have seen my provision, but you didn't see me so as to love me. You saw all this, but you don't love me because you never Saw me because your heart is hard. So that's how the covenant starts. The Red Sea miracle was not enough. These people are so hardened in their hearts, so blind in their eyes, so deaf in their ears. They need a supernatural power greater than Red Sea power. They need a supernatural transforming power greater than ocean-splitting power. They need to be touched by something that can reverse Deuteronomy 29.4. And let me tell you something. Until that happens in your life, until that happens, you're touched with supernatural power of God in your heart, you'll never know what He's done for you. It only happens when the Spirit of God touches a person's life. Romans 8.4. The mind governed by the Holy Spirit of God that produces life and peace. But the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't want to love God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And that's the description of the people who got the covenant in Deuteronomy 29. Until the Holy Spirit Verse 8, 6, until the Holy Spirit gives you a mind to see the beauty, the worth of God, you cannot and will not love Him. You will not delight in God. Now, that doesn't mean that an unbelieving mother cannot have great affection for her child, because she does, but it does mean that that unbelieving mother will always love her child more than she loves God. Fallen people are capable of great sacrifices, but they don't make those sacrifices out of love for God. Romans 8, fallen people do not long to worship God because their hearts are blind or hard and they have made their eyes blind. And none of this ever changes until the Holy Spirit comes and gives you new sight, which we'll see at the end of, of the message let me just tell you this, until this truth sinks in your heart, I am unable to love God because I am unable to see God. I'm unable to love God because I'm unable to see God. Until that truth sinks in your heart, you will never be grateful from the place from which you have come. You'll never appreciate what it means to be born again until you grasp with all of your heart, only the Holy Spirit is awakening hundreds of hearts here in Spartanburg and bringing them to this church. Only God does that. Red Sea splitting doesn't do that. Miracles don't do that. Only the Holy Spirit touching eyes and heart does that. Two weeks ago, two of our staff members flew to Alaska to talk with a possible new mission partner about um, joining them in the work they're done in this very beautiful but yet very hard land. And on the flight up there, they sat next to a man who's done hundreds of thousands of dollars of business in Alaska. And when they presented the gospel of the gospel of the hope of Jesus Christ, that heaven is better than any of these pictures. He said, I just have to tell you guys, I just don't see a need for me for God. This is Deuteronomy 29. God right in front of him. And he can't see God. Because of the hardness of his heart has blinded and everybody in this room today would be just like that man on the Alaskan Airlines if it weren't for that moment in your life when the Spirit of God caused you to see the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ. You're here because of a miracle. A miracle that you see. Now, when you keep reading the covenant, the statements in verse 12 become quite interesting You're standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord, your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God. Now, this is very interesting. He is making a covenant. He loves them. He's going after them. He's reaching out to them. And he's making a covenant with them, knowing all along they will not keep. The covenant. So how is this possible? How will they be his people since they're not going to be able to keep the covenant? Well, there's a couple answers to that. One answer is how he's not going to do it. He handles that also in Deuteronomy 29. This is how he's not going to have a covenant with the nation of Israel. He's not going to do it corporately because now he starts dealing with individuals in the nation. Deuteronomy 29.18, make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison because sin begets sin inside a movement. When such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke a blessing on themselves thinking, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. I'm going to live in sin, but I'll be safe. Don't worry about me. Living in sin, risking my life in sin every day. Don't worry about me. I'll be safe. That's what God says about that type of thinking. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. The Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. And the Lord will single them out for disaster. Now the reason why that God did that is because there were many people in Israel through the years that said, Because I belong to Israel and God has promised a covenant to Israel, I'm safe even in my sin. I belong to a group. And I'm safe because I belong to a group. You think many people in America feel like that? This place has prospered me. This place has provided for me. Protected me. Living here, I'm safe. Or go beyond. Go beyond America. Other western countries of people who have for years and decades belonged to the same church. The same tradition. The same institution. They belong to a worshiping family. And they say, because I belong to that group, though I live in willful sin, I am safe. Everybody my family loves me, everybody in my church loves me, everybody in my small group loves me. I must be safe. That's not covenant theology. God says, one at a time, He never saves people by groups. God deals with individuals when it comes to salvation. When an individual persists in going his own way, no matter what the group, no matter how many times they go to a church and do the Lord's Supper, read the Apostles' Creed, no matter how affiliated they are with a a Christian movement, where God is moving, if they are persisting in rebellion, God says they are not safe. Now Deuteronomy 29:18, right there. Make sure there's no bitter poison. The belief that spreads like that. It's so important that God included that in the Old in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That's straight out of Deuteronomy 29. Because even in the New Testament, here in the book of Hebrews, they were departing from Christ because of persecution and were still trying to cling to their Jewishness since Hebrews is primarily a church of Jewish Christians leaving Christ, clinging to their ethnicity, saying, I am... Rebelling against God, but I belong to this group and I'm safe. God says, verse 14, nobody is safe by belonging to a group where their individual is hard toward God. If you are an individual who has no heart for holiness, you are not safe. The people of Israel found this out through a devastating judgment. We call it the exile. Happened years later after this prediction was made in verse 23. This was after an army invaded them. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur, nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this destruction to the mighty nation of Israel because by that time they had a great city, great temple, great walls. The destruction was such a shock to the surrounding nations. People were asking, how did this happen? And Deuteronomy answers. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to the land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because the people abandoned the covenant of the Lord. Now, If if you were a part, you're living there, you're in Moab, about to enter into the new, new land, and you hear this covenant explained to you, you might be scratching your head at this point and say, I'm a little confused. You said that you wanted to be a God who's entering into a covenant with us, but We're not going to keep it, and therefore, you're going to wipe us out, but you made a covenant with us, and we're going to go away. God, I don't mean to sound disrespectful, but I don't think I get this. I'm a little confused here. God explains that in a very interesting verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. He says, It's going to be a mystery how I'm going to do this. Now, I'm going to get back to that verse, but I just, when I come across verses like this, this may be one of the greatest self standing verses in all of Scripture. A verse that even if you don't know the neighborhood where it belongs and the houses that it is connected to in this passage, just let this verse rise and comfort you because throughout my life and a lifetime of trying to study the Scripture when I have stood at the caskets of little babies and grieving parents and when I have watched teenage children rebel and leave home, when I have watched marriages break up searching for a word from God that can try to help bring a healing bomb on this immeasurable pain. Or sometimes my job as a pastor is to see calamity that's larger than our local area. It might involve 22 people being shot in a Walmart, killed in El Paso, Texas. It might be terrorists bringing the World Trade Centers down. It might be a hurricane that would not leave. An island for 24 hours over the Bahamas, bringing total devastation. And any time I look at such pain, and I have no idea what God is doing with this pain, and why He allowed this, and what's going to be the future, I just lay my head, I open my Bible, and I lay my head down on Deuteronomy 29, 29, and say, the secret things belong to the Lord. And I hope, I beg you today, that this will be a practice for you, that no matter what you're going through, that there will be times in your life where instead of looking for an answer, you will just say, I know that one day there will be no more mystery. But right now, God has not told me why he did this. And God only always tells us the amount of information we need to serve and honor him. That's what he tells us. I will give you enough information to obey my will. If he keeps information from us, it's because we don't need it right now in order to love him. But Deuteronomy 29.29 does exist with neighbors, other verses, other houses, other promises. So let me try to connect. What he's saying. So there's a mystery that's going to be solved, going to be revealed, and the first part of the revealing of that is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, and that is this nation is not going to be totally annihilated. There will be a covenant between Israel and God that will be kept. Deuteronomy 30, a futuristic look, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. So God saying, I will not ever be finished with this promise first and foremost, obviously, to the nation of Israel. If we live long enough, there will be a time where, again, one by one, You could read in the newspapers coming out of Tel Aviv, one day if we live long enough, millions of Jews come to Christ because of that promise. It's going to happen. God is not going to be totally done with Israel. But they will come one by one by faith in Christ as well, not by a group. But for all of us, how is God going to pull this off that we see Him but we don't see Him because our hard heart has blinded our eyes and we can't see Him ultimately because we don't want to see Him because we want to stay where we are in life. How is this going to happen? God answers in Deuteronomy 36. There's coming a day where the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart and all your soul and you will Live. That verse, verse 6, is the most hope giving verse in all of Deuteronomy 29 and 30, because this is God's stunning reply of how He takes people, blind, deaf, kicking, screaming, not wanting to see people, and causes them to see Him and love Him. He Cuts out the rebellion out of their God-despising flesh. God will have a covenant people that love him because he will sovereignly, by grace, no one deserves this. God will give them a new heart. That's the promise of verse 6. Now, this new heart is described in verse 9. The Lord again will take delight. In you. You say, Well, doesn't the Lord delight in everybody? No. The Lord delights in those who delight in Him. And that's what He's doing in this new covenant. He's producing people who get up on Sunday morning and say, It's not a burden to come here. I want to go delight in God. Who made you that way? Why is the rest of the city not here? Because God in sovereign grace has given you a heart that delights in God. Does God delight in all people? No. When a young man in high school persuades a young girl to give away her purity because he throws away some lies about how much he loves her, God does not delight in that young man. When a gunman walks into Walmart in El Paso and takes the lives of 22 people, God does not delight in that gunner. When a doctor rips a helpless life, a little baby, out of the womb of a mother in an abortion, God does not delight in that doctor. When a rich man believes he's earned his wealth and therefore can keep it all and has no obligation to share with those who are less fortunate, God does not delight in that rich man's Prosperity. There's nothing in the scripture that offers us any hope that God delights in people who do not delight in God. You won't find that anywhere. God delights in those who delight in Jesus. And there's nothing that's ever going to change that until God takes away our hard heart, opens our blind eyes and allows us to see His beauty and love His beauty and delight in Him. God says, I'm going to do that by circumcising, cutting your heart. It's interesting when this covenant started in Deuteronomy 29, verse 1-2. You can read it later today. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He uses the word cut. I'm going to cut a covenant with you like cutting a check. Cutting a covenant. Here... How does he get rid of our God-despising hearts, our self-loving, sin-loving hearts? He cuts them out. So anytime you think covenant, think cut. No covenants are ever made in the Bible without cut. Therefore, we're not not surprised at all to see Jesus on the last night of his earthly life before he was crucified gathered his disciples with him to tell him about the final new covenant covenant from God. Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is announcing here that God is making a new covenant through the blood of Jesus that will produce a people who love God. And so when we see Jesus, the scourge on his back the nails through his hands, feet, and the blood that flowed. That day, Jesus was cut, and through the cutting of Jesus, God was cutting a new covenant with the world that they may believe. When Jesus died on the cross, two things happened. He cut away all of our guilt that has spent our life rebelling against God, cut it out cut it away and in part of the new covenant he put within us the righteous Holy Spirit of God himself that delights in loving God. That's what happened through the ministry of Jesus Christ. You might be tempted to feel that this is impossible. How can someone who's never delighted in God one day begin delighting in God? Sounds impossible, doesn't it? One day, they don't delight in God. How will they ever delight in God? The Israelites ask the same question. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in the heavens so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey it. So they're asking people on earth. Israel is asking, how in the world? We can't get to heaven to get this power. Of what, that's what they were thinking in Deuteronomy at, at Horeb. We can't go to heaven to get this power that will cause us to start loving God. And then God continues. Nor is it beyond the sea that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. We can't go to heaven and get it. We don't have any boats. can't go across the sea and get it. This power that's going to cause us to start loving you. We don't think this will happen. How is it going to happen Moses replied, No. The word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. Now at this point, if you need some encouragement that everything that was said in Deuteronomy 29 is pointing to Jesus, can I just say something? Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody, a writer in the New Testament, looking back on the Old Testament, that just by God's grace and His Spirit happened to pick up these four verses in Deuteronomy and show us how they're fulfilled in Romans chapter 10. Oh, I wish somebody would have done that. To show us all of this is fulfilled in Jesus. Well, I'm like you. I'm grateful that the Apostle Paul did just that. With no editing on my part, how look how the Apostle Paul edited the Deuteronomy thirty covenant in I'm so sorry, this should be Romans ten. This is all Romans ten. Last question Lisa asked me before Waltina, is your PowerPoint right? <laughs> no. But the Deuteronomy thirty covenant Fulfilled, you'll recognize this as Romans 10. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down, or Who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ from the dead. Romans 10 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. Straight out of Deuteronomy. The word is near you. Right now, it's very near you. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Here's the word. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus bought the miracle of new birth for you. Jesus bought the miracle for you. He came down from heaven for you. He came up from the grave for you so that through his life, death, and resurrection, cut out that heart of stone and replace it with the righteous Holy Spirit that does delight in God. We're going to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness now, and I'm so grateful that after I stole this message from Piper, he also wrote two new verses For great is thy faithfulness. I really wanted to preach the message today so you'd hear the band and you together sing the second and third, brand new, you've never heard, based on the covenant, Deuteronomy 29 30, and the fulfillment in the New Testament. Let's pray. Father, so grateful that today we can see you. I mean, we love the mountains of Alaska, the rivers. Green grass, snow-capped peaks. We love newborn babies. We love football games on Saturday. Such pleasured smells and sounds and enjoyment of friends. But I'm telling you, God, we are confessing today. We love Jesus above all. No one like him that stirs our affections, the creator of all the oceans and mountains holds them in his hand, creates the very oxygen that we are now breathing, causing our legs in just a moment to stand up, muscles connected to sinews and and, and nerves, all connected to bones, connected to our heart, our brain, telling us to stand up. You, Jesus, masterfully wove together this body. But it was a sin-loving body, was a God-rebelling body, blind, deaf, and yet you, God, through the miracle of the new birth, the Holy Spirit that was poured out of the blood of Christ, poured out of the suffering of Jesus, poured out of His cross, and poured out of His resurrected body, poured out of His empty tomb, and now poured out of heaven where He reigns. That Spirit has awakened us. And we have no one to thank but you, O Holy Spirit. Now, would you please look at the blind and the deaf and the hardened. And today, awaken them. Give them sight and give them love for Christ. It's in his name we pray.